This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I'm joined by L. Grover Fricks and Josh Basset to dig a little deeper into the cultural context of Isaiah 6. That's right. I'm so excited. Marty was blazing through six chapters of Isaiah in his first episode, and he thought, oh, this is the pace we're going to go. And then it's like, nope, we're going to stop right here, and we're going to look at Isaiah (laughs) 6 a little more. Yeah. I mean, there's so much going on in there. We We have to sit down strike up a a bonfire and chat. Mm -hmm. Uh, But first, before we even get into that, last episode, there were two shout outs of, oh, we should ask Elle about that. So here are the in-episode answers. I will be brief. Uh, The first thing that uh, I was name dropped about in the episode was, what does it say when it says, come now, let us reason together? Um, in reference to who is being referred to in there, I love that you guys pulled out the um, the who has abandoned whom conversation and how the pronouns are so ambiguous in, uh, in Hebrew, and it could have gone either way. But here, it doesn't say, come now, let us reason together. Interestingly, it says, um, so the imperative, um, walk, which we love. We love that in Bema. Walk as an imperative, and that's plural. So that's y'all and then um please let's walk please and then um the let us reason together is in the cohortative voice the cohortative voice and hebrew fascinatingly is a tense that indicates desire so when god is talking about paro he doesn't actually say uh in the exodus story he doesn't say no he'll see how glorious i am it's incohortative so he's really saying oh that he might see Mm. my heaviness um it's a desire so that's what uh is being used here walk please oh that we might reason together so that's that first answer. Mm. Second thing. Second thing is um, me just having a mild dispute with Marty about <laughs> uh, the archaeological record. <laughs> uh, because he said Josiah is really where we can take things really historically and say, yes, that absolutely happened. I would push that back. Um, I took all the archaeological courses that were available in English at my university because I felt more comfortable taking the ones in Hebrew and the humanities, than the science courses in Hebrew, like if you miss something in the humanities, it's okay. But anyway, uh, and there were lots of disputes, plenty of room for conversation, but things that are undisputed is we do have, um, a piece of rock in Ostracon that has King David's name on it and says King David on it. Ding, ding, ding. We know that he was around and it's dated, which is more exciting to the era of King David in the Iron Age. So it's not just like somebody was writing about him on a like fantastical King Arthur type of way. It's from his era. We also have a um, record of King Ahab, who's also pre-Josiah, um, and that's up in the north. It's a another big piece of rock that says, thanks to King Ahab for lending us all of these horses for this battle, battle that we also mm-hmm. have biblical record of. So yes, we know about King Josiah, but we also know about Omri and Ahab and David and all these other guys. Um, and that's the cool thing about science is it's updating itself continually. Maybe something that we could take to heart in the humanities as well. I'm saying, oh, I'd like to change my mind publicly. Yeah, and I know Marty's talked about David, at least. I can't say for sure on the other guys, but I know he's talked about David before, so it's not that he, he was unaware know. of that, but I think right. David is relatively recent, like that right. That piece is relatively recent, so I'm I'm assuming it was just like a... He's being on the safe side. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'd presume. I'd yeah. presume. I just want to be the, the thorn in his side. <laughs> That's my goal. <laughs> <laughs> not actually... Okay, um, so prophetic um, intro, we had those two episodes with Reed and Marty talking about what is a prophet. Um, We can review a little bit before jumping into Isaiah 6, because that's going to be important for our conversation. Um, 
Josh, was there anything that stood out to you specifically that you want to underline or bring out or counter just a smidge from their conversations? Uh, yeah, I mean, largely, I I would affirm what they said. Um, there was a lot of really dead on things. In fact, I was scrambling a little bit because a lot of what I was planning to say on this episode, when I listened to them, I'm like, oh, dang, they already said that pretty <laughs> well. Uh, what am I going to do here? But uh, I, I'd like to call out um, a couple things, which is, you know, that they mentioned the, the uh, like in, in the two episodes talking about the, the imagination and the, the pathos of feeling what is wrong in the world so deeply and also having this uh, uncanny, uh, uh, divinely inspired ability to to uh set forth a vision for for what things could be in right. in opposition to uh how things exist in the here and now and i i wanted to add to that because there's there's um i think a a third element to that which is that um like the rabbis talk a lot about how there's a lot of variance in what kinds of visions prophets have like some of them have visions that are so grandiose and cosmic and and alien that they they say it's like they're they're more overwhelmed by god's presence whereas others like moshe famously like he's just having a conversation with god it's it's very uh casual and i i think that um Rather than using that to like try and rank the prophets or something silly like that, <laughs> I think it's important to understand like that um, within that that quality of of feeling something and articulating a vision, there's also a a a sense of like human loss that happens. Like there mm. is something overwhelming to this experience, and uh, Isaiah or the multiple Isaiah voices we see are using the the best words they have mm -hmm. to talk about what's happening in their time and the best words they have to paint this vision of the future. Um, right. And I think we can also see that in like how fundamentally poetic this book is. Mm -hmm. And even in the like the little like chunks of poetry, I, I don't know how clear this is to see in uh, across different biblical translations, but, um, in Alter's translation, especially you can see kind of the, the episodic, uh, like poetic, uh, chunks yes. and it's like, Oh, this I, is, Oh, sorry, please. I just want to jump in there because I so agree with what you said about them doing their best to convey something that they're experiencing. Um, and I want to counter Beekner a little bit because, uh, Reed quoted this really cool quote, which I just love the vibe of about like, thus says the Lord being this like immense weighty thing. Um, but in the Hebrew, it's ka amar. So ka means like, this is like, and then amar is say. So <laughs> what it really says, and we say, you know, when we're thinking with our Christianese brains, we're just like, sure, this is what God says. But it doesn't say that. It says, this is like what God says. So they're taking this like massive image that God has given them and this totally wild scene, and they're doing their best to take this sense of what God is um, conveying to them or a vision or whatever they're working with and um, trying to put it into words. Yes. Um, and so to me, whenever I see Katamar or whenever I see um, thus, it's not as weighty. It's like, look, this is what... <laughs> This is what it was like. But, right. This is my humanity trying to put divinity into a uh, spoken word, which Jesus would do. But um, cha, John, sorry. How, how often does that phrase show up? All the time. All the time in the prophets or all the time throughout Tanakh or? Um, all the time throughout Tanakh. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it'll say, Yahweh said this to Moshe. And then Moshe will say, God told me to tell you this. And sometimes it'll say, or sometimes it'll say, this is like, and sometimes Moshe uses that before he goes off 
<laughs> on a little detour. And sometimes he doesn't, which is always interesting. Yeah. Just painting freely here <laughs> or not. It it is funny too because it it uh it's very common to how uh we use the word like in modern parlance. Right. Uh and I think that that's very fun, especially uh, with how much uh, some people disdain the effusive the use of like, right. it's like, yes. God was like this. And that's right. literally what it says in the Bible. God was like this thing. Tanakh should be read by a California Valley girl. That's correct. <laughs> and then like, God said it. <laughs> but, and I think that, you know, it, it, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you said where it's like the, the with the Beekner quote, like it, I don't think that necessarily um, undermines that sense of gravitas, but it, it adds to it where like the prophet himself or herself is not thundering down this authoritative right. thing. It kind of mixes with the pathos of like they're yearning toward and trying to capture something that is bigger than them. Right. Which I think is very important for, because I mean, you know, there's lots of prophets that we don't hear anything about. Right. And especially with the episodic nature, it's like, sometimes it seems like, like, I, I don't know, like I imagine, um, like a prophet speaking to like the latest, uh, mass shooting that happened. Mm -hmm. Like there is an immediacy to it. But it also reflects and refracts on all these larger things that a prophet might be trying to speak to. And, and that's a lot of that's a lot of things to pull together. And the, the depth of feeling is commensurate and related to how there, there might be difficulty in expressing the fullness of it. I also like, like you said, that it gives less of a thundering posture of I'm on top of Mount Sinai, right? And I'm still yelling down at everybody else what y'all need to get, <laughs> usually mm -hmm. on the internet, right? <laughs> yes. Versus coming down into the midst of the people and standing as one of the people and saying, this, I think, is like what I'm hearing from the Spirit. Uh, but we could keep going for ages. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so trying to stay on track here. The Hebrew word for prophet is what, friends? Just like James Cameron wrote, it's Navi. <laughs> <laughs> A true prophet. Wow. <laughs> Excellent. Um, that is absolutely correct. Okay. So that word is related to the word or the image behind the word to be more precise. It's a word for drip. So it's more like God is the beehive, right? And there's honey dripping down onto the people. And the prophet is catching that honey and showing people. Um, it's just I've received this tiny little image, this tiny little picture, this tiny little um, sonnet of what God is saying. And there's so much more that I can't even fathom. But here's one little drip. Um we talked, or they talked, I wasn't there, they talked about uh, <laughs> prophets speaking communally. Yes. Um, that's often the case, um, and I think that is an important weight, a counterweight to our presumption in our individualist culture um, for listeners in the States anyway, mm -hmm. um, to remember that. But it's not always the case. Nathan, the prophet Nathan, speaks to David personally. Shmuel speaks to Eli personally, right? And to Shaul. The Didache has some great rules about prophets. Like if they're traveling from town to town and they tell you to do something, just go ahead and stone them right then. <laughs> Which like there's a hedge for for when you're um, communally speaking to a community who you're not a part of. So that's always mm. helpful um, tradition. <laughs> They're present tense, right? Uh, Marty and Reed and, mm -hmm. and Brent talked a lot about that um, and how we wouldn't need to trust if that were not the case, right? We could just be like, well, God says this is going to happen. And so now as his servant, I'm going to do whatever versus leaving that future veiled, um, calling us into participation in shaping that future. Which actually on, on that note, um, mm -hmm. there's, I, I think that's really important because the, the end point of a prophet's prophecy is it's supposed to, like they said in their intro, it's supposed to provoke us to act and respond. And 
one of the big principles in prophecy that I've, um, I can't remember who off the top of my head, but I've heard rabbis comment on, uh, is that, um, when, uh, particularly when God pronounces a judgment, like that's always on the table for being rescinded. Like, mm-hmm. like even we can see like with Yonah's prophecy, like God didn't say like repent or else God just said, I'm going to do this. And they repented and God's like, all right, I won't do it. So (laughs) this is, there, there is, it's a conversation is like that. And there is a a need for response within that. So yeah, I think, and that, that also gets to the like deconstructing that like thundering, this is this, you know, lightning bolt of pure divine wrath or, or word just smashing in. Like this is something you need to know urgently that you need to act on urgently what comes from that? We can talk about where things are headed, right? Uh, and what's at stake, but right, there is an undefined aspect to the future that it, the prophets, I think, have to preserve. Which is why God is described as the God above everything else, right? Leon, because their idea of destiny, right, was still like written in the stars, included in um, Jewish thought. And so God being above the stars and coming down through it was important. Mm. Um, But so the last point they talked about is how um, prophets, which is related to what you were just saying, can feel whack-a-mole and angsty, right? Whenever we talk about, oh, so-and-so is a prophet of their time, they're usually not like a super benevolent, just chill (laughs) vibe Mm -hmm. of a person being like, yeah, man. (laughs) Um, They usually feel like they have a message. And when we look through Tanakh, um, we, to me anyway, it seems like there's a pattern. I'm not Heschel or, um, or Brigman. Or as Josh referred to him on our text that read, Bruges. <laughs> Bruges. <laughs> I'm not Heschel or Bruges. I, w- I was not going to take Reed's spelling advice. I was, well, there's an easier way to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Bruges, sure. Uh, when folks are not shemaying, when they're not heeding, when they're not listening, that's when prophets show up like, Avimelech in Genesis listens to his dream that God sends, and then he does the right thing. Shmuel listens to the voice of God, Samuel, and goes and does it, right? David isn't listening, and that's why he needs Nathan to show up. Ahab needed Elijah because he wasn't listening to um, God, because he wasn't listening to what had happened before and was happening. And um, so life is, it can be a little bit of a dour worldview, but life can be conceived of as a cycle of repentance, right? We're all living out the book of Judges all the time. Um, And relationship with God ought to be deeper and fuller and more beautiful than that. Um, But still, even when it does, our repentances just become smaller, right? (laughs) Like classic Brother Lawrence practicing the presence. It's just becomes like tinier little moments of turning your attention back to being with God, even if it's not like whoopsie daisy, massive life shattering sin. Now I need to do teshuva. Now I need to repent. (laughs) It's just smaller. Um, But I think that's why prophets tend to bang on the scene, you know, kind of stomping through the door is because God isn't being heeded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, and I want to underline that because sometimes in Christian culture, different segments, not, not all of it, but like being really obnoxious, <laughs> you feel like they have such a prophetic voice, <laughs> you know, like, okay, you know, uh, hmm. so thinking about how we show up, what is it that we're, we are listening to and wrestling with, and how do we bring what we think God is doing into that situation with an appropriate voice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it a situation where everyone's saying everything's actually fine? Like, isn't Tanakh, you know, like, actually, I don't want you to be doing your feast. Or is it something that people are actively trying to figure out how to make better? And uh, kind of like Marty was talking about in the deconstruction construction comment mm-hmm. in the last episode. Or can we show up with our thoughts in a prophetic way? Sure. Like 
oh, this might be being missed, but in a more helpful way than just, uh, well, I'm not going to participate in this because it all sucks. Well, and that, that kind of gets to something we kind of touched on a bit when we were texting about this episode, where there there is kind of a continuum between priest and, and prophet, with priests mm-hmm. being like part of that rhythm of like, you need to come back, you need to repent. It's it's there, it's present, it's not as uh, in your face. Uh, right. And you know, prophets do tend to like touch on the raw nerve, talk about the elephant in the room, like, and, and there's kind of a spectrum between that. And, uh, mm-hmm. yes, there's definitely, uh, uh, especially I think we all know this very, uh, uh, immediately. Uh, I think a lot of times, uh, especially with social media, there's like that overexertion of the prophetic tone that sometimes uh, goes beyond what is appropriate for a certain situation or people. And I I think that also gets into what you were talking about earlier with the the individualism and and how it's, especially when we talk about systematic issues, we have a very hard time navigating kind of what uh, that comment Marty said that you're apparently going to hear over and over again and probably need to hear over and over again, Mm. you know, responsible, but not necessarily individually guilty. That is a tough thing for us to grasp. We like to lump those two things together. (laughs) We do. And priests, I love this continuum you're talking about, even though we're going to get in trouble for going off the rails. (laughs) Priests are collaborative. Mm. You need the community to say, hey, man, I need to make a peace offering and to bring their animal. And then you help and you facilitate. And we're called to be a kingdom of priests. Mm -hmm. Paulos, Paul says that we should all desire to prophesy, sure. But our primary identity is this more collaborative one, right? Priests are in the gates. They're giving out food to those outside the gates. They're doing all these things. But you still need people to come to the gates to give, right? You need people to come with their animals to sacrifice. It requires consent. (laughs) (laughs) Prophets don't always let that happen, right? They're like, I'm going to lie in the ground naked for a while. Okay, you do you. (laughs) Yes, yes. Prophets are kind of like the the pain response system in the body. It's, It's not fun. It is necessary, but it also, we don't need... We don't need more of it than we absolutely need. Like It's not something <laughs> right. we should want to all be uh, having to fill that role. That's a bad situation. <laughs> so let's be more priestly uh, in our conversations and social media, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. Brent, would you like to uh, read the first couple of verses of Isaiah 6 for us? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Uh, go on through verse 7. Your definition of a couple is... Seven is God's number. I'll I mean, come I, back. Come on, I'm on be board. The I'm always on board for reading more text. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which we had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So we're going to do a little bit of a pashat of just digging in a little bit what Marty didn't have time to bring out. Um, And then we're going to look at the cultural context of what exactly is happening. And as you said in the last episode, Brent, this new atonement theory. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on? Um, Okay, so first... I mean, my first question is half of a joke, um, and it's really a sidebar. But how, so a setup is onomatopoeic for a snake, right? Mm. So how does a snake have hands? Because <laughs> it says it's bayad in his hand. He brings a coal in his hand. Okay, that's a side thing. That's a good question. Unless, dun, 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 the snake in the garden 
right? He got his legs shaved off. What if he also mm. got his hands shaved off? And the Seraphim in heaven are ones that still have their legs and hands. This is like very the Geico salamander, right? Yeah. <laughs> and these hands are made of asbestos or something. What? So they're not burned up. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> the practical <laughs> questions brought to you by the teaching team. Okay. Well, so I, I actually have a follow-up to that. Um, from uh, this, this isn't even my idea. This is Robert Alter's idea because seraph also uh, it can be used to mean something that's burning. Oh, sure. Well, if you want to make the joke serious, Josh, no. <laughs> go well, ahead. No, no. Robert <laughs> Alter, it, it's it's Seer. very funny because he Ooh, he is. <laughs> Ooh, that is good. Okay, but Robert Alter asks a, a, a really good question. He he's not one for joking, but he asks the question I find very funny, which is that if the seraphim, if these angels are burning, why do they need tongs to pick up this live coal? That is interesting. And I'll also, tell if you. If there are snakes also, how do they have wings? That's my final question. <laughs> well, you haven't seen a winged snake before? Uh, Alter <laughs> does definitely have a sense of humor. If you read his opening introduction to his like, philosophy of translation, it is so shady. That it is It puts true. Like, is the true. real housewives <laughs> of whatever city to shame. <laughs> With the amount of shady throws. Okay. Which is all very valid, by the way. Here we are in the year that King Uziah died. Uh, okay. So before this, I just love this chapter being set here because we've had five chapters of pain, right? We've had failed expectations. I thought you were going to be this kind of garden. And I came back and this is what I found. We had all of this. This is what you were supposed to be. This is how you flubbed it. Um, this is how you messed this up and that up. Uh, and into the midst of all of that spiraling down of <laughs> back and forth, um, we're invited into presence, Right. We're not left with, God's people are not left with, just like sit there and think about it silently for eternity, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> think about what you've done. Out of that space, God appears, right? We're invited into the throne room because it's being with him and being reminded of how cosmically huge he is, I mean, kavod he is, and weighty he is, and how small we are, that things get brought back into alignment. Um, being reminded of calling, of purpose. Um, that's what makes us leave our sin behind, is not when we, in my opinion, really like focus down on it and freak out about it and make it part of our identity and everything. It's just when we realize how much bigger the world is and what God is calling us to and who he is that we realize like, oh, I've been walking around with my pants down. That's dumb. Um, <laughs> let me pull those up real fast and carry on because there's so much to do. Um, and there's so much to be struck with just with who God is. Um, and so I love that. I love that placement of it here. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to underline one other part in this just straight Peshat reading, the surface level reading. Um, that we can see the opening line in the year that King Uzziah died and be like, oh, this is just centering us temporally. I think it's a little bit more than that because what does Uz mean? Strength. It's a specific kind of strength too. Oh. Um, Josh and I have said before, there's a lot of different kinds of strength. Um, but Uz is like the ferocious strength. It's the um, mm. female goat strength, which... When I pulled up to Brent's house, there were some um, goats on leashes next door, but I didn't ask what the genders of them were and then ask about their ferocity. It's one of each. Oh, okay. Good to know. <clears throat> well, one of them was like trying to pull toward my car. So who knows? Maybe that was a female one. <laughs> Our neighbor <laughs> has been dragged across the lawn <laughs> by the goats before. So. Wow. Yes. Beautiful. I, I believe in that strength. Okay. So if we read it that way and think about the life of King Uzziah, it's not just in the year that the, like the president died. It's in the year that the fierce strength of God, right? That's the Yah part of his name. The fierce strength of God has died. <sighs> Usually God is able to pull us across the yard, right? And say, <laughs> no, 
don't attack that car. Don't go into the building's <laughs> yard. But the fierce strength of God has died. And why has it died? Why Uzziah was a great king until the end of his life where he was struck with leprosy because, but he remember what he did? Bible trivia. No. <laughs> I've no. never been good at this. Okay, it's fine. He pulls the classic move. He tries to give a sacrifice when he's not supposed to. And the high priest's name is Azariah. And Azar means help. I think there's something cool in there that um, the strength, our fierce strength, is not supposed to supplant mm. the help of mm. God. Ooh, yeah. That's, uh, uh, if I can... Uh... yeah jump in make this longer as always um i i think that's really interesting in this reading especially because you know sometimes when we're in that prophetic fierce strength you know mm -hmm. trying to drag everyone around us sometimes we uh we overtake genuine sources of help that we could collaborate with and we allow our desire to feel fiercely strong to overtake our calling to help, to serve, to bless all nations. Literally supplanting the priestly role. Look at that. We, we brought it around. So that's the context. We've been going back and forth, feeling the ways that we have failed, how we haven't met God's expectations. He calls Yeshiahu, Isaiah, into his presence, and he marks that as this is the year where I expected God to show up and just pull me back to purity, pull me back to justice, pull me back to righteousness, everything that I'm supposed to be. Um, and instead, he has not. And that hope that God would defend me, his person, and not allow us to be taken into exile and not allow us to spiral, right, depending on dating choices. We feel that this ferocity, the fierce strength of God, either within God or within ourselves, has died. Uh, and that's this moment that we're brought in to learn some things. But you have some pashats that you'd like to lay down, Yehoshua, Josh Basse. What you got? What's your what's your pashat take? Actually, something you said kind of stuck with me um, in terms of well, I mean, first of all, the the contrast in that first verse of King Uzziah's death, you know, the death of this fierce strength, immediately followed by. Yeshiyahu revealing like, but I saw God above everything, lofty, exalted. Right. And what's also interesting is that this, you know, this chapter is uh, an accounting of Yeshiyahu's call to be a prophet, um, but it's not at the beginning of the book. And I feel like that thematically mm. just perfectly fits what you're saying of Isaiah um, really just... Uh, opening with this kind of messiness, all this pain, but then stopping and saying, but this, the whole thing I'm being called to do, it, it, it's a return to this intimacy that, that maybe extends beyond what you can actually feel of God's strength. Our hope has petered out. The great king who is supposed to lead us failed mm -hmm. and he's dead. We overused our strength. We wrestled in the garden where we were created and found ourselves lacking night's tale vibes yeah <laughs> yes um and yeah the one thing i wanted to touch on it, it kind of connects with that you know refrain that marty said I, I think it's you know that that situation of um uh with yeshiahu standing there and saying like i i can't why am i even here like i can't be here i am uh i'm ruined or um uh alter has a note that you could translate it as as being like struck dumb which is mm -hmm. kind of thematically appropriate for the idea of unclean lips, um, of unclean speech. And maybe even seeing in that, like Isaiah being like, I've just been talking about all the, all the crud, all the filth, like I'm down mm -hmm. in the muck, just banging on about how awful everything is. Like, how can I coexist in this perfect space? Um, but also at the same time, like I, I hear really strong notes of, you know, what, what Marty pulled out about, you know, all are responsible. Some are guilty. And to the point we were talking about earlier, um, of, uh, just how as, as a individualistic culture, um, with that being like, not, not just something that we believe, but is kind of just forefront in how we experience and relate to things. Um, it's hard to hold 
a a sense of responsibility of collective identity um in in concert with that responsibility we like to kind of pare it down we're like well i'm yeah i'm a christian but i'm not that kind of a christian you know i'm not one of those <laughs> ones because that's the most important thing is making sure we're perceived correctly <laughs> to support our ego. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's where it, in in that individualistic, well, like, well, let me make sure I don't get lumped in with the bad ones. Well, first of all, it, it means we're not looking at ourselves and perceiving ways in which maybe we are kind of that type of Christian <laughs> or that type of whatever. Um, right. And I, I just I think that. Um, you know, we, we can wrestle a lot with um, uh, how we navigate that, and it can get really complicated trying to untangle all those things, the the mess of deconstruction. Um, and I what I see here is just such a simple uh, response to that reality of like, yes, there's collective responsibility, but also I'm not individually guilty for the the you know, conditions in Congolese mines and, you know, sweat houses in Bangladesh. Like I didn't decide to do this, but I am on the receiving end of those benefits. Um, right. And just that, that uh, kind of confession of Isaiah of like, I am, I am part of this unclean people. I have unclean lips too. And the people has unclean lips. And it's only after that, that he can, receive that cleansing right because he says woe to me yes not woe to everybody else because they suck so bad (laughs) exactly woe to me he's not saying like man god why did i have to get born in this generation like why why did i have to (laughs) oh poor no it's the opposite he's like this like i am i am in trouble because of the all these factors that he he didn't choose he didn't choose when to be born or he didn't get to choose his... what i hear you saying is that as we realize that we have a certain level of privilege no matter our identity mm-hmm. that it can be easy to want to establish parameters that still um communicate purity about us and that's hard in a cultural landscape, which says this group is actually suffering more than you. Mm-hmm. And this group is actually suffering way less. And that might not always align with individual experiences of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we are scrabbling around with our self-concept you know, hanging on by our fingernails, trying to say, wait, no, I'm actually this, that that message from our culture that we actually need to think of ourselves as X, Y, Z way can mm-hmm. make us feel self-pity, try to yes. reestablish, no, 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 I am actually suffering. I am actually suffering, mm-hmm. right? Which can totally be legitimate. Absolutely. So in that space, how do we, how do we grapple with things? Well, yeah, like if, if Isaiah walked into the throne room, I was like, but God, I'm one of the good Israelites. Like I didn't, it's like <laughs> that, that is, that's not what actually brings us cleanliness, but we can just. Right. Except if I can just explain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's a different if, when you take on responsibility, it can feel like an admission of, of guilt or a judgment of self. But it's it's really just us being honest about all the the mess that we are embroiled in. And, and we don't have to figure out fault as the first thing. But accepting the the uncleanliness is what allows for there to be uh, a next step, allows for God to right. to do something about that. Yes. Rather than giving us time to do our big monologue about you don't understand, mm-hmm. God says, you being welcome to be here is what I want you to understand. And then also like stop dithering about it and just go do what I need you to do. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah. I love the way this just cuts through that is just, yeah. Isaiah says, Oh man, this is so messy. And God's like, let me take care of that for you. And then Isaiah's like, all right, well, well then why don't I just go? <laughs> God's like, great. 
That would be awesome. Thank you, <laughs> Frodo. <laughs> oh, man, that's so good. I love that. How much, I, I mean, I feel like we've solved the culture, Josh. We said DMR <laughs> priests and less profit. Oh, and then uh, just accept that you're good with God and stop trying to well actually. Although we did it. We solve society. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel, why do I not feel good about that? I feel, I feel <laughs> suddenly very uneasy. <laughs> weird (laughs) okay that's amazing i want to get into uh the layer beneath the pashat right and the pashat is always good we don't want to throw pashat out the window sometimes we can do that when we're sneering about how much more evolved we are than everybody else let's not do that Mm -hmm. let's honor the pashat it's good it's good food in there but i want to talk about why we have this specific thing that our salamander, our on fire <laughs> Geico salamander, <laughs> hands to Isaiah, to Yeshayahu. Why is this happening? So, Brent. Is that what I'm supposed to be imagining when I think of a seraphim? It's now, the Geico yes. gecko. <laughs> <laughs> but with wings, lots of wings. Uh, yes. We'll talk about cherubim some other time. Isaiah couldn't see their faces. Or their feet, so... Couldn't hear his cute little Australian yeah, accent. It could be the Geico Gecko, I suppose. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. Okay. So, Brent, what comes to mind? What's a reason that Isaiah's mouth would have to be purified? Well, I th- the first thing that comes to mind is that he said something that he wasn't supposed to say, whether that is, like, speaking out of turn for God or, you know, just conveying his own thoughts when he's supposed to be quiet or whatever. Great. Uh, That is one of the main um, rabbinic vibes Mm -hmm. as he soiled himself via sin in some way, whether whether that's expressly through something he said or it was in his heart and will, but expressed through his lips or not directed to God. There's a whole like thing that you can get into that feels very James to me, but also very Jesus about out of the fountain of the heart the mouth speaks that's not right overflow thank you okay people have also said perhaps somehow in caring for the king who had leprosy because of his failures he was somehow like defiled by the leprosy Mm. which would be an actual like Torah reason for something which we're always we (laughs) we like things Mm -hmm. to be in alignment with tanakh um but you would think that there that would be included in the story somehow was there any sort of like Kissing the hand ritual. <laughs> well, I mean, right? he's, there, there is a rib- he's like, wait a second, you have leprosy. He's like, no, kiss it. You have to kiss my hand. <laughs> there, there is a, a, a text or a, a rabbinic, at least, link. There's some loose textual connections between um, the rabbis say that, that uh, there's a connection between leprosy and um, gossip or, or slander of some kind, um, which would connect the lips to that, but. I want to hear where you're going with this, L. So what's the cultural context comes up because if you read Torah, which we here at Bema would recommend, mm-hmm. you know, just crack it open. Uh, there isn't specific purification around unclean lips. It's not a category of wrongdoing. There's all sorts of sins that get listed that you have to jump in a mikvah for, that you have to get cleansed for. You have to have the priest come cleanse your house after it gets mold, right? There's all of these different kinds of things. But unlike in our world, um, our Christian world, where we're all about like the, you know, the sins that aren't physicalized, that are all about what have you thought or what have you said, Um, There's not a specific cleansing, and I'm saying this around specific words that have to do with cleanliness and purity, Mm -hmm. um, which is the term that Isaiah used. So, yes, you can find like David in the Psalms being like, oh, I have failed, um, made the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable, right? You can make those kinds of leaps. I'm not saying they never thought about like gossip or slander or whatever. That's not it. But the idea that your lips, your tongue, and your or your mouth could be unclean or defiled in some way is not a concept mm-hmm. in Torah. Which then begs the question for me, 
why is this Isaiah's Mm go-to? Why is he saying of all the problems, um, why is it this one, right? Because in like Zechariah, we have his clothes aren't good enough and he gets better clothes. Mm. That's an idea from Exodus where Moshe has everybody change and put on new clothes before they meet God. Mm -hmm. So that one tracks, which by the way was Moshe's (laughs) Moshe's idea, not God's. Um, But anyway, So why is it this? Why is this his go-to? I want to talk about the huge culture to the north, Assyria, and some of the Assyrian um, practices and rituals that they did, which depending on when you date Isaiah, um, would have either just been relevant generally culturally, because Assyria's culture was way more dominant than like anything you could call Israeli culture, right? Tiny, 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 tiny piece of land, massive empire. Um, Or if you want to date Isaiah later, extremely culturally relevant because it was literally happening in the building next to you, right? Mm -hmm. So... There are four different kinds of people who do magic <laughs> in Assyria. When we're recording, this is a last minute. Poor Brent. We apologize. Um, it's a Reformation Day slash Halloween. <laughs> Reformation Day. <laughs> Depending on how you're raised. <clears throat> Ultra reformed over here. Um, so talking about magic fits. We've got four different types of magician, wizard folks. We've got Baru, Asipu, Kasafu, and Maklu. Those are our four types. There will not be a pop quiz at the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the bottom two, Kasafu and Maklu, are like the bad ones. Mm. Um, and in fact, Kasafu actually shows up in um, Exodus when God's telling them, don't do this, do not suffer a witch to live, is what KJV says. It actually is from this word. Um, So he's not really talking about people with pointy hats. He's talking about specific Assyrian folks. Anyway, so the bottom two, Kasafu, are like dangerous evil sorcerers who can be male or female. Hammurabi says the best move is to drown them. Um, Maklu are folks who steal beauty from women and use it to ensnare handsome men, um, kind of the classic hag archetype in our folklore. Um, and they've got to be burned. So Puritanism kind of like combined the two, which is interesting. Dang. But our top two, Baru and Asipu, are like people who use magic for good um, in Assyrian culture, not just like a truthful statement. Um, <laughs> just so you know. No. Uh, so Baro are priests. So they're like wizard priests. Um, and they fall into the diviner or the soothsayer category. Um, so they spend a lot of time watching birds fly and a lot of time dis- dissecting animals and looking at their livers. And we're going to talk about that more in a sec. Um but like Sennacherib is his father, a big murder mystery. Assyrian history is like the best novel you've ever read. So <laughs> Sennacherib doesn't know why his dad died. He goes and asks the Baru to tell him. So that's kind of their function, their priestly role. Asipu are the wizard's priests, the wizard priests, who have the power to remove curses and perform atonement. They're going to come back later. But right now, I really just want to focus on Baru. So again, these good wizard priests who do a lot of divining and soothsaying and figuring stuff out. They have specific ceremonies that they have to do when they go and they ask the gods what happened or what's going to happen. Are you ready for the steps of this Ritual. Yes. Bring it on. It's uh, relevant, I promise. I'm not just nerding out over here. Okay. (laughs) So the first thing that they do is they're going to wash, they're going to clean their clothes, they're going to anoint themselves with oil, which is always good to know that that's a culturally relevant practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Anointing with oil goes with becoming a portal to heaven, by the way. Mm. Not just moisturizing. (laughs) I mean, certainly true. Uh, certainly helpful if you have um, the particular skin and hair that you're likely to if you're from that part of the world. Um, So you do that. You're becoming a portal, right? We see that with uh, Jacob when he anoints Bethel 
he's like marking it as a portal to heaven, right? In his understanding of who God is, which is kind of broken, right? He's like, wow, God's here. Um, and that's why he names it the house of God. But he anoints that spot with oil. Same kind of thing. But the next thing they do is they take cedar, bing, 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 um, and they purify their lips with the cedar. We have all of these um, documents saying, like, I am the priest of Erdu. My mouth is pure. Mm. Um, then they take some of their hair um, and they put cedar in that. They put more cedar in the fringes of their garment. Um, sometimes that's cedar resin rather than just like hunks of wood. But then what do they do? Then they set it on fire after they've purified themselves with it, um, which means chewing on it, by the way, sometimes, um, mm. in order to call the gods. They set the resin or the cedar wood on fire in order to call the gods. When the gods show up, which apparently happens when you're a wizard priest, I wouldn't know. Um, you first have to give them water, and then you give the gods a special drink. Um, they're always seated on these giant thrones, by the way. Um, then you have to give them tribute, and then you have to give them lots of bread, which I think bread is great tribute, but nobody asked me. <laughs> bread fan. Um, then... They make lots of requests for reliable information. So the whole time they're giving gifts, they're like, please tell us the truth. Please say what we need you to say. Please answer Sennacherib's question. He'll probably kill us if we don't. Please. Could you like be straightforward? That would be really helpful. So you got to do that the whole time and after. And then the gods tell the Baru, the wizard priest, that they've made a decision and that they wrote it in the entrails of an animal. The best place to write things. I appreciate <laughs> about God. If he's going to write something ominous, he does it on the wall, not inside an animal. <laughs> no death required. Or on a tablet. This is even more convenient. Or on a tablet. Good point. Good point. Doesn't even mess up your mosaic. <laughs> the desktop and laptop of, <laughs> of the, the time. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so what's similar there? We have cleansing your mouth with a piece of wood prepares you to speak before the gods, usually to make some kind of request, right? Mm -hmm. But we do have three differences, at least. Difference number one. In Assyrian culture, you are supposed to chew the cedar first to purify your mouth with it, mm -hmm. and then you light it on fire. In the Isaiah story, the ember is already on fire. Yes. So in the Bado ritual, you're lighting it on fire in order to call the gods. So I think that's so cool. If the ember is already on fire, God is saying, in the year that the fierce strength of God has died, I I'm already here before you have even thought of me, before you have even tried to call me, before you've even sought answers from me. Mm. I'm already here. In fact, the 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 smoke comes out as God is talking. It's it's uh yeah, that's great. Very, very Sinai. Uh in the midst of your sin, I've been here. It's also much scarier, by the way. <laughs> like chew on a piece of wood. Sure, yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> encountering the living God is scarier than doing your ritual to fix everything yourself, mm. right? Like if, a, if the Geico lizard who's on fire with wings <laughs> brings you something that's on fire, that's scarier than being like, okay, I'm going to take a little bath. I'm going to use some bath bombs. <laughs> I'm going to get all dressed up. I'm going to like handle this sin issue, this like uncertainty issue myself. And then I'm going to bring God's timing into it like under my control. <laughs> I'm going to get all set up. I'm going to finish sinning first because I'm kind of enjoying what I'm doing. And I know I'll feel guilty about it later. But once I'm done sinning, then I want to get right with God. So then I'll do it. It's like, nope, been here the whole time. Yeah, it that is a really interesting inversion, too, because, uh, you know, it's a lot less threatening to chew on some wood or, or resin than it is to, like, have to put a, a burning ember in your mouth. Yeah. Yes. Totally reminded of the Narnia quote about um, the fear of God, but mm -hmm. different time. <laughs> Difference number two, uh, the phrase that we find over and over and over in all of these borrow rituals and prayers that we have written down um, is the phrase, I am the one whose lips are pure. Oh. And instead, in Yeshayahu, he says, I am the man of impure lips. 
So our strength before God, again, does not come from having it all together from like, look, I checked all your boxes. I did everything you wanted me to do. Certainly now you can speak with me. It comes from the humility that we are impure, that we are responsible, even if we're not guilty, that we uh, aren't folks who have checked all the boxes to say, here I am, Hineni, no matter what me and my people have done, I'm still before you and I'm surrendering to you to partner with you to fix the problem in whatever your way is going to be, not whatever way feels good to me which is often profiting, right? Mm -hmm. Yelling about stuff, which he's certainly going to continue to do. Isaiah is going to continue to do that. (laughs) Many of us are just doing that who have not been told by God to do that. Uh, Difference number three. So we had the embers already on fire. We had confessing that we also have impure lips. Difference number three. Um, Once God is there and before, um, in the body ritual, there are lots of steps, right? There's um, the anointing, there's the washing, there's the cleansing beforehand. And then you have all the stuff that you have to do for God um, with like five layers of stuff, water, special drink, tribute, lots of bread, um, make your requests in the right way. Here, we have one step. And that one step is sufficient to cleanse everything, right? Mm -hmm. It is finished, Stop worrying. We did the one thing, which has always been the way that I've read this before studying the text of like God makes a way for us when he's just trying to talk to us and we're like languishing on the ground being like me. (laughs) It couldn't be me. (laughs) He's trying to have a conversation. We're like, but my sin. And he's like, I'm trying to talk to you. And so before my research, the reading of like, Isaiah's worked up about his sin. And so God's like, cool, that's what you're worried about here. Ta-da, it's better, magical, burning coal. I did it. Mm -hmm. Um, That is still kind of true, even with this cultural context. If we don't have to do one million things, all we have to do is receive the fact that we are cleansed before God and we're ready to go. And we don't need to put all these other steps on top and all these worksheets and all these like, well, maybe if I tell my community group about it and then like the person with the most authority in the room, like prays for me and like text me and all that is great. Community is great. Being serious about sin is great. Caring about whether we're walking away worthy of our call is really great and important and enables us to grow maturity. And mm-hmm. we don't want to like dump all that out the window and be like, you're good with God, man. Why are you so worried? <laughs> we want to create opportunity to grow in our character and our integrity and look more like Jesus. We're all about that. But that is not what stands in the way of intimacy with God, mm-hmm. of being with God, of seeing him face to face and having a conversation about our identity and who we are. Mm. Those are the three things, Uh, our similarities and our differences, prophet versus wizard priest. How does God take the culture um, and things that Yeshiahu is familiar with and tweak them to say something different about who he is and who we are? For people who want to know more about the Assyrian wizard situation, (laughs) is there a good source for that that somebody could pick up? Is there like a personality quiz, like which of the four kinds of you <laughs> do you steal beauty from women yeah yeah how which, do you feel about drowning which versus wizarding, <laughs> yeah. which wizarding house are you from right create a buzzfeed quiz based on that <laughs> absolutely uh I, so there is a JSTOR link that I can give you, Brent Billings, um, that has, it's 50 pages long. So you got to be ready. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, There's also a book by Lewis Spence called Myths and Legends of Babylon and Assyria. But you can also wait for it, Wikipedia, borrow, um, and there'll be, it'll be short. I think there's like a stub article in there, but. I can read. And I'm going to come back to talk with Marty um, when we get to Isaiah 30 and 39. And I'm going to bring him on back. I'm going to bring back the Baru and Asipu. So I'm looking forward to it. You'll hear more about it right here on the Bama podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that was a perfect, perfect way to end it, I think. 
coming soon. And no rider strike on the Bama team as far <laughs> right. as I'm aware of. So That's right. Oh, man. Uh, one last thing. I know that was a perfect ending, so I'm so sorry. The other possible ritual, by the way, for a ritual mourner priest. Uh-oh. Five. Five wizard priests. Um, when they're making their drum that they mourn with, they draw a curtain around the black bowl. They whisper incantations in their his ears. Then they purify their mouth and do some stuff. Sprinkle a circle with cedar resin. Fill the air with a sensor and a torch. Um, and so encircle the bowl with flour and then you slaughter the bowl and use his hide to make your drum for your ritual mourner priest. So I just love the energy though for Isaiah of like, oh boy, we're purifying my mouth. Like what kind, what kind of wizard priest analogy are we making here? Am I a ritual mourner? Is, is Israel about to be killed? Am I the person who's in charge of like setting up their funeral? Yeah. Or, or is there a different possibility? That works way better with his name, you know. Yeah. Talking about salvation, he's not. He's not doing the Jeremiah. Jeremiah would be the <laughs> making the, the drum from the priest, high. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to wait for a different year. We're doing the verse by verse there. Yeah. Okay, Brent, you can take us home. All right. Well, uh, we'll have all of those things that we just mentioned in the show notes. You can find those at BamaDeceptionShop.com. Get in touch with us there. Use the contact page to find any of us, really. And uh, we'd love to. We'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to. If anybody knows, if anybody finds a BuzzFeed quiz on which <laughs> Syrian wizard you are, I'd love. To, I'd love to see that. Um, so yeah, all of that's on the website and. Um, Yeah, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.